Go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you would. We'll get there eventually to the book of 2 Kings. The book of 2 Kings. And if I were to say to you, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. You can repeat that back if you'd like. You see, you don't really believe it. As a matter of fact, I almost feel like, JC, it almost seems a little sarcastic, doesn't it? I don't know if it's the happy part or the new part. You know, we got the year part. We can all agree on that. But happy new year. Wow. And I got to tell you, it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day to me. 20 became 21 and now 22. And so many of the challenges that we've been navigating through over the past couple of years just seem to still be with us. Anybody? Uh, okay. All right. And what we all thought would be behind us, because all of us, from the prophetic folk to, the, to, to, to governments to the health professionals, all said that this somehow that, you know, this mask wearing thing, that and that which is prompting the mask wearing thing would all be in our rearview mirrors. But obviously it's not. And... We begin to ask certain questions. When? What's next? How do we respond? But there's an inquiry before God that I generally try to avoid. And it's the word why. Because why many times brings with it a certain measure of accusation. The same way that when your children, you tell them something and then they push back and they ask you, well, why? Why? Well, immediately, you know, you're, you're taking belt. I mean, you know, sorry, got some old school folk in the room. You know what I'm talking about. But there's certain questions you didn't ask mom and dad when they said something. And why happened to be one of them? Because the old school response was, How, what? I know you didn't ask me why. I brought you into this world. I'll take you back out. You understand Someone wrote a book of late and spoke of three types of business. Your business, my business, and God's business. And the challenge of being sure that we don't get into somebody's business that's not our business. Uh-huh. And why can often begin to lead us into God's business. But like you, I'm human. I'm weak. I don't understand. And I'd like to understand, if for no other reason, to know how to navigate life in this moment. And if you're like I am, I think some of us have felt a sense of stagnation. Perhaps even a sense of regression rather than the progression that we know that the kingdom of God is intended to have. Yes, the kingdom of God suffers violence, but what does it say? It says the violent, the active, take it by force. It is what? Steadily and constantly advancing. Wow. 2 Kings chapter 2. I hope will give us some insight into perhaps where we have found ourselves. Elijah, Elisha, rather, who was staying in Jericho, 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. 
the men of the city came to Elisha. And they said, look, our Lord, the town is well situated, as you can see. But the water's bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went out to the spring, threw the salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Let's pray. Lord, help us this morning hear well. Lord, this is not just incumbent upon who stands behind this desk to communicate well. God, we have to be anointed by your Spirit to hear that which the Spirit is saying to the church. But Lord, as importantly, we have to be anointed by your Spirit to do that which you are requiring of us. So Lord, anoint every one of us within the hearing of these words today to hear well and respond better. In Jesus' name, amen. Jericho. Now, those of you that even made even a few appearances in Sunday school growing up, we all know the story of what? Jericho. Or more specifically, what? The walls of Jericho. Exactly. And so what we find here, we find that there were a number of schools of the prophets, and one of them happened to be at Jericho. And this is where Elisha has found himself. Now, it's interesting that if you look at the prophet Elisha, of his recorded miracles, which there are more or less 28, the first three all had to do with water. The very first one is that Elijah departed, says he passed back over the Jordan, the waters parted. The second one happens to be the story that we're looking at here, and the third we find over in the next chapter, chapter 3, where he makes water appear in the desert. Now we know from, as we look in Scripture, that many of the miracles or many of, much of the ministry of Elisha is a type of Jesus in the New Testament. We see many things that are foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Elisha happens to be one of them. If you remember, Jesus' very first miracle involved what? Water. Remember the story, turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And so here is Elisha doing his thing, and he's doing it at Jericho. Now, what is the historical significance of Jericho? Well, we believe it's one of the oldest cities in the world. First conquered, it was the first fruits of Israel crossing over into promise. This was their first conquest, if you wish, and what was intended to be a tithe of that which God had promised them to possess the entire land. This is why that they were to take no plunder out of Jericho, is that everything that they took from it was to be what? Dedicated and put into the treasuries of God. This is why we had this fool named Achan who decided that he was aching for a little something-something of his own. And as he tried to hide some stuff in his tent, remember, is that something happened to the entire camp until they figured out, uh-oh, some of the devoted things have been taken by somebody less devoted. And so Jericho 
carries a lot of significance geographically. It was in the lower Jordan Valley. It was ideally situated, as a matter of fact, in the midst of desert, all around it, it was known as the Isle of Palms because of the palm trees that grew in this particular area. It was a major uh, agrarian uh, 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 location. It was a major immigration route, north, south, east, west. I mean, you could not have gotten more ideal. Jericho was the place you wanted to be, but there was only one problem. If you remember Joshua, as he was leaving Jericho after that conquest, he said, cursed is anyone who tries to rebuild these walls and by extension rebuild this city. Joshua placed a curse on the land. Don't ask me why, have no idea. But this, that was 500 years prior to the passage that we're looking at here in 2 Kings. 500 years have passed with this land being unproductive because of the curse that Joshua had spoken over it. And I begin to look at this story, begin to look at the significance of Jericho as being, if you wish, the breadbasket of that region. A major route of immigration and commerce. And I begin to make some comparisons in my mind to the very country in which you and I live. Ideally situated. The, quote, breadbasket of the world. A place where folk want to come. North, south, east, west, immigration. I mean, the, the, the correlations are so much the same, and yet a land that's got some problems. Hmm. A land that its water is producing something other than the life that I believe that God intends for us to have. So how do we see our land healed? Elisha had an answer for what is ours. And I want to, this morning, as quickly as possible, I want to talk about four things. I want to talk about theological suppositions. I want to talk about the symptoms of a curse or judgment. I want to talk about the sources, and then I want to talk about some solutions. The first is we have to deal with some theological suppositions or assumptions. Now, I'm going to give you a passage of Scripture, and you can go home and you can, you know, have a weeping and gnashing of teeth of your own. But I'm just going to read the Bible to you. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Now, are your theological brains scooching out of your ears yet? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Now, come on. We've been trained as good Pentecostals. We've been trained that, you know, this is, this is the devil and this is God. And it's real simple. And because if it's good, it's God. If it ain't good, it ain't God. Therefore, if it ain't good, I'm going to bind it. I'm going to loose it. I'm going to rebuke it. Then I'm going to bind that loose and rebuke that bind. 
and I'm going to get my Pentecost on. I'm going to move the devil out of my realm. Let me tell you, Christians spend a lot of time rebuking God. They spend a lot of time when they see hardship come into their world. They say, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. That's not the teaching I'm on. They're not the passages of Scripture I've got highlighted in my Bible. So certainly God would not be messing with me like this. Ooh. Unless the Lord has done it. But wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. Pastor Jim, what about the cross? I thought the cross that was that point of demarcation where everything would be was going to be made okay. Sin dealt with, curses broken, all of that stuff, all that Old Testament, Old Covenant stuff was dealt with at the cross. Wow. But we have this little word called appropriation. Yes, the Bible says, forget not all its benefits. And yet, how many of you know that appropriating that which Christ has done for us is something that you have to actively do? It's a little bit like having funds available in your checking account and you broke all the time because you won't do what? Appropriate that which has been deposited into your account. I ain't got no money. Yeah, but you got money in the bank. Yeah, but it's not in my pocket. You're not appropriating what's available to you. And so, yes, did the cross do all of this? It did, but it has to be appropriated. And somehow we get this idea that the New Testament God, God 2.0, replaced the old angry one. I like that New Testament God. He's, he's a God of love. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of grace. Let me tell you, he's the same God. And we don't serve an angry God. Is he a God that occasionally gets angry? Yes, but he's not an angry God. It's a totally wrong depiction of him. We can say, well, Pastor Jim, if that's, not, if that's, if that's the case, then, then all of your talk about maybe that, that we are is symptomatic of a curse or judgment. How do we deal with this? Well, you know, in the theological waters in which we live today, there's a stream that flows that says that, well, a loving God would never, for instance, allow someone to go to hell. There was a contemporary exegete, contemporary teacher, got very, very popular, one of the skinny jean-wearing guys, some years ago, and he came out with this supposition that there's no way a loving God would ever condemn somebody to punishment. Okay? Interesting. It's not biblical, but it's interesting. So for us to say, well, who, who is God to judge me? How many of you ever heard that? You, you're not to judge me. I love hearing a couple of kids get together. You're not, you're not the boss of me. You're not to judge of me. But if we believe that he's a God, that there's no consequences, there's no judgment, then it leads us to a few suppositions. One, God is not holy enough to judge. Hmm. Two, that we somehow met the holy standard. Therefore, we're not subject to God's judgment. 
And three, our need for someone to become a mediator to stand in the gap between a holy God and our unholy mess becomes unnecessary. See, if we don't believe in the judgment of God, the entire message of the gospel makes no sense. It's completely irrelevant. It just becomes an add-on that I can get blessed in this life rather than realizing our true state and condition that without Jesus, none of it works. Mm. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Dr. R.T. Kendall, who was with us back in the fall of last year, he says this, and I quote, The difference between God's covenant with Israel... And America's relationship with God is simply put, God initiated his covenant with Israel. America chose to be called a nation under God. Unquote. Now that's an interesting dichotomy right there. God had decided Israel's going to be my people. But the United States decided we would be a nation, quote, under God. We would put it in our founding documents. We would inscribe it on our public buildings. We would put it on our currency. Could it be that a nation that has chosen to be called a nation under God to be held to an even greater standard when we made the choice? And then we made the choice not to be. Could it be? Could it be? And could it be that these hardships, this defilement, we somehow brought upon ourselves? Isaiah 24, 5 says, The earth is defiled by its inhabitants. They violated laws, altered statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. Theological suppositions. So quickly, what are the symptoms of a curse? Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 30, and I don't have time to begin to unpack that, highlights the benefits of obedience along with the ancillary consequences of disobedience. And in Deuteronomy 28, he's unpacking, you know, do this, be blessed. Oh, I mean, it's just wonderful. The first 14 chapters are wonderful, but we are first 14 verses. But we get to verse 15 and we see the word, however. And that's not a word you want to see in Scripture. Is the word, however. Because there's an exception clause now that begins to kick in. If you do not do these things, here it comes. And let me just highlight a few of those howevers. Number one, a lack of productivity. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little. Supply chain. Inflation. Economic uncertainty. Debt. Interesting. Yesterday, my wife went to a place close to us to buy a Virginia country ham. Not for us, but to send to her sister, who is a ham-eating person. 
Now, this is Virginia. Hello? So you, a farmer raised a piggy. Piggy makes the ultimate sacrifice for ham. The hams are cured that they brought to a store in Virginia. And, he, and, and so she went to get a ham to send to her sister. And the answer was, we haven't been able to get hams. And I'm thinking, that's got nothing to do with container ships off the coast of Long Beach. How do you have a supply chain issue with hams in Virginia? Somebody's like, move on, Pastor Jim. But some of this doesn't make any natural economic sense. Could it be that the economists and all the brilliant folk out there, the principles of Keynesian economics, all of a sudden they don't work? Why? Because maybe there's something spiritual that's going on. Speaks of health. The Lord will send fearful plagues on you and your descendants, harsh and prolonged disasters and severe and lingering illnesses. Moving along, number three, mental health. The Lord, listen to this, the Lord will give you an anxious mind. Eyes weary with longing, a despairing heart, and you will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. How many of you have read a little something, something of late about the mental health challenges that this pandemic has brought upon folk? I mean, come on, we're, we're all a little jacked up. Hmm. Speaks of weather. Listen to this. With scorching heat and drought, blight, mildew, which will plague you until you perish, the sky over your head will be bronze, your ground beneath you iron, and he'll turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. The weather. I quote, this is from the news. The first days of 2022 have become part of a recent rash of wild weather. Devastating tornadoes across multiple states, drenching rains in Southern California, gusting winds in Colorado that fueled a devastating wildfire. Might it be the earth is in revolt? Could it be global warming? It's not just socialist dogma. But could it be that it's real? I'm not here to declare what what in the natural has caused it. What I'm trying to do is to open our eyes to some spiritual realities that the earth is screaming at us. If we're not listening to it through the still small voice of the Spirit, through those exegetes and those prophetic men and women, could it be that God now is having the creation yell at us? I think so, if we're listening. Wow. And another manifestation of God's judgment or a curse is when God removes the restraining power of the Spirit over inherent sin and allows its outworking on an individual or a people. Have you noticed how creative evil is now? When Pastor J.C. and I, you know, we rode our horses to school in the snow back in the day. 
You know, guys would have a conflict and we'd call each other names and then we'd meet after the gym, after school and roll around in the dirt for a bit and we'd call it a fight and that was the end of it. Now folks are trying to store up, you know the stories of what happens with conflict now. Where did that creativity, where did that creative evil come from? Well, is that rap music? No, it's not. Another generation, it's those violent video games. Not the level of creativity and evil that we've seen in our midst. There's something else going on. Something else. That God has taken his restraining hands of grace off of a people and allowed what's inside to come up. 2 Timothy talks about it. Terrible times, terrible folks in the last days. And you can see the list there in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Slanders without self-control, brutal. It's truth. Are we living with the symptoms of a curse? I believe so. So if we are, then, Pastor Jim, where did they come from? What are the sources of this? And let me give you, first of all, a definition for the sake of this message. The spiritual and natural consequences of unconfessed, unresolved, or unreconciled sin. Let me say it again. A curse. The spiritual and natural consequences of unconfessed, unresolved, or unreconciled sin. You know, the Bible says that a curse without cause cannot land. It's interesting. Meaning that whatever curses are around, it has to find access. And the access is through sin that curse a curse can now be in operation. R.T. Kendall again, and I quote, It's my conviction that America is under judgment for at least four reasons. One, it's racism. Two, legalizing abortion. Three, approving of same-sex marriage. And four, theological liberalism in many churches. Unquote. You know, we don't talk about much of this. Some of it we don't talk about at all anymore because it's just too uncomfortable for us. And I don't disagree with his four things, but I believe that I want to add to a moment. The real transgression, Deuteronomy 28. Because of the evil you have done, in forsaking him. Unquote. Now, please note that the text does not say this. Because of the evil you have done by forsaking him. It says that the real evil is in forsaking him. You see, many times we point to the evil in forsaking God. In other words, the outworking or the consequence. But the real evil is when God is forsaken by a people. When a people declare we are a nation under God. When God's church declares we are God's people and yet don't live like God's people. Hmm. Be glad when Pastor Eddie comes back in the pulpit. He's a lot nicer. And you see... That transgression, it leads to some other things. Deuteronomy 29, verse 24, the nations will ask, 
why has the Lord done this to this land? My wife and I have the privilege of travel, more so when it was not the COVID thing, but we would go to other nations and they would look at us and with wonderment about this amazing place called the United States and they would look at us and they would say, can you help us understand what's going on in your homeland? Can you help us understand your leadership? Can you help us unpack January 6th as a true patriot movement? Help me out because we have been experiencing these things in our nations for years that we call it what it is. Hmm. And the nations, why, why has the Lord done this? And the answer will be, and I quote the scriptures, it's because his people abandoned the covenant of the Lord. The covenant he made with them when he brought them out and they went off, worshipped other gods, bowed down to them. Wow. Other gods. God was always real, real clear about this one. The first two commandments, thou shalt have no other gods, no graven images. And third, not taking the name of the Lord in vain, which I believe if you're doing one and two, you invariably are having to do three. So we find really almost the first third of the Ten Commandments have to do with false worship. And God knew how, what the proclivity was. He knew that when Moses was up on that mountain receiving these rules... That the idiot children would be down there at the bottom of the mountain making a golden calf. We have a propensity when the one true God doesn't show up, when he doesn't perform in the way that we want him to perform, we invariably, where is this fellow Moses? He's so long coming down. Well, I guess we'll make ourselves another God. And you can say, well, Pastor Jim, I don't have any graven images in my house. Oh, let me just tell you, idolatry, excessive devotion or reverence for some person or thing, an idol, a person other than God, blind or excessive devotion to something. I read a little piece by John Piper of late. He was unpacking 1 John 5, the love chapter. And at the very end of it, he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Interesting, he never refers to idols anywhere else in this book, but sort of almost at the very end, he realizes the propensity and the proclivity that we have toward worshiping something else. And Piper uses this as his definition of idolatry. Anything in the world that successfully competes with our love for God is an idol. And we have a lot of them, mammon, amusement, but I believe there's yet another one, it's celebrity. Celebrity. And from entertainment to athletics, influencers, and dare I say, even in the church, celebrity is a big thing. Ooh, what did J-Lo wear? How many did Tom complete on Sunday? I mean, I mean we, we are, we're obsessed. And we do the same thing in the church. Oh, Pastor Brett, nobody can preach like Pastor Brett. Now, I'm not saying that Pastor Brett sets himself up in that place, but let me just tell you, people will set other people up 
on those pedestals and on those thrones. Do you realize the danger that we're doing to those men when we do that? Because God will have a, God has a way of pushing people off those pedestals so that there's no confusion as to who God really is. Celebrity. And let me give you the biggest idol of all, ladies and gentlemen. It's you. The mirror has become the new altar in our culture. Man, it's quiet in here. The mirror. And I'm not talking about physical appearance, although, my goodness, the amount of energy that we spend trying to be prettier so that someone will notice us and compliment us. We use different words. Self-actualization, potential, betterment, destiny. The problem is, though, the center has shifted from God to us. The subject and the object have shifted. My goodness. And God simply becomes the great enabler of our greatest self. The idolatry of celebrity. Innocent blood. Cain killing his brother. God coming. What is this thing that you've done? Your brother's blood cries out from the ground. Here's a number. 62 million. 62 million innocent children aborted primarily for the sake of convenience since 1973. Pulpits don't talk about abortion anymore. We don't. It's too uncomfortable. The number, the number is, 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 is too, it's too great to even be believable. I mean, we look on the atrocities of the 20th century, whether it was Stalin, whether it was Hitler, other pogroms that have attempted to wipe out certain types of people. 62 million! And is there any wonder why our land might be under a curse? And we've had enough time, Republican, Democrat, moral majority, Supreme Court's coming, going. We've had enough time since 1973 that if the will of the people were different, that we could have affected those in influence to have changed this legally. So don't blame it on the Democrats. Don't blame it on the Republicans. Don't blame it on the Supreme Court. Because in a federal republic, it comes back to you and to me. So what are the solutions? Please move on, Pastor Jim. You're killing me. Deuteronomy 30. What I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. I mean, after all of this, curse this and cursing that and do this and get this, this is what God says now. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may obey it. You realize that word for the word in the Old Testament was the word debar. The understanding in Hebrew thought was that God and God's word were so interconnected that you couldn't disconnect them. And that God's word had the power to accomplish itself. Do you realize that word is inside of you and I? 
That word that will not return void is in you and I. And the writer goes on and he says this, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction, blessings and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him. Choose. And that choosing begins in this room. And those of you listening online, choose. 1 Peter 4, 17, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And let me tell you part of the way that it begins. It begins, I believe, with the priesthood of the church. Ezekiel twenty two twenty six. 26, it says, her priests... Do violence to my law, profane my holy things. They don't distinguish between the holy and the common. And they teach that there is no difference between the unclean and the clean. You want to marry your pet? Go ahead. I mean, if you love one another, obviously it's got to be okay. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call good evil. And evil good, and who put darkness for light and light for darkness. This is the liberal theology Kendall spoke about. Is that our pulpit sadly had become so therapeutic that we want people to leave loving the pastor. We want people loving that word. Oh, that was so good. He spoke to my hurts and, and just made me feel so, so tingly about me. He just spoke right into my soul. This is not a Hallmark movie. This is about truth. Paul writing to the church at Ephesus in Acts, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will or the whole counsel of God. We get part of it. God loves you. He's rescued you. He's got a great plan for your life. We love that part of the gospel. But what about the part that necessitated the need for this gospel? What about that part? D.A. Carson, who is a theologian, talks about what this means, what the whole counsel of God entails. The conduct expected of God's people are one of those benchmarks. And the pledge of transforming power both in this life and in the life to come. Redemptive purposes. And ladies and gentlemen, could it be? And whether you want to call it a curse, whether you want to call it judgment, could it be that God has a redemptive purpose in the hardship that we're facing? Could it be? But there's a demand on our cooperation and our participation. Hebrews 12 says, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Why? Because the Lord chastises what? Every son whom he loves. Hmm. So if we go back to our text, what did the prophet do? Now let me say that this is not an answer for every situation. The bowl, the salt that Elisha asked for. This was a prophetic action. However, it provides great preaching fodder. 
And so let me say to you that I'm not interpreting, I am applying. The new bowl. A few years ago, I spoke a message about new wineskins. But you see, that new bowl is one that nothing's ever been in before. It hasn't been, it, it, it doesn't have any sort of residual funk of something that has been in that bowl. A new, like a new wineskin, Proverbs 25 says, like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. James 1 talks about true religion is keeping oneself from being polluted by the world. That's why the prophet asked for a new bowl. And by implication, it was a bowl that was empty. Which also begs the question, what are you and I full of in this moment? And then salt as an agent of purification. Salt's very interesting. It can preserve, it can sterilize. Jesus in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. But he goes on and says, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You see, salt can and will lose its savor depending on what it's mixed with. Salt can also lose its, its savor if it's placed in close proximity to another miracle, its savor will leach out. Isn't that interesting? What is the influence of the world into the church? Do we, have we lost our saltiness? I have to wonder. One commentator said it this way, it would never occur to reporters that Christianity's decline is due to an embrace of modern culture, not a rejection of it. It is the secularization of religion that's made it less compelling. And it's the self-consciously, quote, relevant churches that have grown irrelevant. The more worldly they become, the less the world takes them seriously. Folk walk in here, they don't want to see a better version of the world. Amen. They don't want to see an improved version of Eddie or JC or Jermaine. They want to see a peculiar people. Folk doing different, acting different. Folk that have got something else flowing in and through their lives. This is the church that God intended to be that salt. This is the church that God intended to be the light on the hill. We all want restoration and restitution. We want revival. But it always begins with another word in this repentance. 1995 or so. Blythe, you were like, what, one year old. We were... Our little church in North Carolina, one, one August. Folk on the floor, crawling around, weeping, crying out. Spirit of conviction fell on that little church. It's a mess. I mean, how do you get up and preach and folk while crawling around in the floor? Say, this is weird. But we work with it. We allowed that spirit of repentance to work itself in that church. And in September, the Holy Spirit fell just like Pentecost. Folks are getting healed, slain in the spirit, falling down, running, laughing. It was crazy. But you know what was prerequisite to that moment? Repentance. A deep, deep work of repentance. Wow. 
And I believe there's a priesthood that God is wanting the church to step into. That's why in 1 Peter, he talks about us being a what? A holy people, a royal priesthood. Now, we know that there's a great high priest, Hebrews, that's gone to places and done what we could never have done. And yet I believe that we have to, as reflections of that priesthood, God has a role for us as the church to step into a priestly place. To begin to cry out, repent. And breaking that curse is not just about removing the dam. It's about releasing blessing. Listen to me. You know, the Bible says that out of your belly shall flow what? Rivers. Could it be, could it be that we're waiting for revival to come from here? Could it be God intends for revival to come from here? Could it be that Christ has already done his part by the sending of his Holy Spirit, that the waters that are in your life and my life, that God is looking for those waters to get Release that whatever is damming up those waters in us, individually, in our families, in our churches, that the dam might be broken. So that the Ezekiel 47 river of God that originates in that throne might come through you and me. And as a reminder, that's an amazing river. And I don't have time to preach it this morning. But that river is one it says that no man could cross. Let me tell you. A real river of God, it will never be centered around one man's ministry or his church. While I'm cranky this morning, I get so tired of hearing revivals referred to by the man's name that God used. Had nothing to do with them. They were in the right place at the right time. Period. And that river, my goodness, what does it do? It says wherever that river flows, the chemistry changes in the water. And what could not sustain life now is made fresh. Fish of all kinds, fishermen on each bank of the river, trees growing on each, each side of that river. Those trees represent you and I. It says every month they bear fruit and their leaves might be used for healing. Why? Because of the water that flows to it and as a result flows through it. And listen. There's this one little passage in Ezekiel 47. It says, but the swamps and the marshes will be left for salt. You know what signifies a swamp and a marsh? It's a place where water stagnates. That's all it is. But where water is flowing, guess what? It stays fresh. It does its intended purpose to bring forth life. Wow. Saints, we live in a dark moment. And I'm sorry I've taken so long this morning. Yet if the church, in being not just a prophetic or a purposeful people, but a priesthood, I believe we can see our land healed. All of this weirdness that we cannot get our heads around, that more than likely has a spiritual root. We're it, ladies and gentlemen. Look around. There ain't nobody else coming. Governments don't have the answer. Epidemiologists don't have the answer. Ethicists don't have the answer. It's up to you and me.
It is up to God's chosen people, the church, to step into that priesthood. Second Chronicles chapter 7, and we were eventually going to get here. But you know what concerns me about a passage like 2 Corinthians 7 is that we read it so much, we don't hear it anymore. But the passage in verse 13, it says, When, this is God speaking, I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people. When, not if. Then he says in verse 14, if, and here are the conditional statements, my people who are called by my name, who would that be other than Christians? will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and, and says my face, not just my hand, and turn from their wicked ways, then here's the rest of the conditional statement. Then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and what? Heal their land. That's what the word says. Martin Luther, in his very first thesis, says this. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You know, it's interesting how we make repentance a one-off. We, we do something wrong and we ask God to forgive us. That's a good thing. But you know that the beginning and the end of your day should be an acknowledgement of who God is, but then accompanied with an acknowledgement of who you are. God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Son, what are you repenting of? Just being me. (laughs) Talk to my wife. There's plenty that we need to be repenting for, even when we don't feel like we do. And I want us to come to the table together this morning. This is why you have your communion elements. And if you would, take those, please. If you don't have them, raise your hand and some folk would be happy to get them to you. But if you would stand. Greg Morris wrote in one of the staff of Desiring God, said, let January mark a fresh beginning of repentance. Repentance is in itself a kind of January. A newness which God renews a right spirit within us and restores our first joy in salvation. You know, this is one of the things that the Lord commanded us to do. Not because it was the first Sunday. Not just so that we could feel better and get this load off of our chest and get right. And I want this morning, I want us to pray this prayer together. This is one of the great confessional creeds. And in this, there's a sense of connection with history, theology, and words that I want us to repeat together this morning as we come to the table. Pray this along with me. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness which we from time to time have grievously have committed. 
by thought, word, and deed against thy divine majesty, provoking most justly thy wrath and indignation against us. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. The burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. For thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake, forgive us all that is past and grant that we may ever hereafter serve and please thee in newness of life. To the honor and glory of thy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it into pieces, passing that bread to his disciples. And he said this, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat this, eat this in remembrance of sin, of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup. And holding it up, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood shed for the remission of sins. And whenever you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are holy and just, not only to judge but to forgive. And we thank you, God, for what these elements represent. Lord, let us step into the priesthood that you have so richly given the church. And Lord, we beg you, heal our land. Touch this nation. Touch our families. God, remove any sense of anything but your blessing. Manifesting yourself as the good, loving Father that you are. God, we love you. We thank you. God's people said, Amen.